Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where host and lacrosse expert Jamie Monroe will do what he does best, talk about lacrosse. Each episode will provide listeners with education, insights, stories, and lessons about the lacrosse world. We will discuss current events, coaching, philosophies, and college lacrosse recruiting. Now let's get started with your host, Jamie Monroe. The Philosophy Podcast is brought to you by Oxia Time, a cool watch company focused on university-branded watches. John Canaris is the founder of Oxia Time, and he was the goalie at Penn in the late 80s who led his team to the Final Four. John is actually best known for being the goalie that Gary Gate dunked on in the Air Gate. Oxia Time makes beautiful, Swiss-made, authentic watches whose design and quality match the essence of the universities they represent. I can attest to the quality of these watches. John hooked me up with a sweet Brown University Oxia watch, and I think it's the nicest thing I own. Initially licensed with eight Ivy League schools, Oxia keeps adding new schools each month. One of the coolest things Oxia offers is custom timepieces to commemorate championships or to celebrate storied teams. Check out the UVA Lacrosse Championship watch. It's sick. Princeton did a really nice one last year as well. Oxia even did an LSU football championship watch this year. For any teams interested in creating a custom watch this season, Oxia will upgrade it at no extra cost to a championship watch if your team wins a conference or national championship next year. For players, parents, and coaches interested in custom team watches, check them out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. How's it going, everybody? Really excited to welcome Dave Cottle to the Philosophy Podcast. Dave is an all-time Hall of Fame coach and has really been a guy that I've known for a lot of years, um, even as a recruit, and uh, couldn't be more excited to have uh, Coach Cottle on the show. How's it going, Dave? Jamie, thank you for having me. I'm glad we could make this work. Totally. Well, let's, um, let's go way back in time and uh, tell us sort of uh, about your journey as a player. Um, and then how it transitioned into being a coach. Well, it's funny. I went to Northern High School, which isn't, isn't around anymore. It's, I think they split it into two schools, and it goes by 418 and 419. And uh, nothing brings a tear to your eye when you go back and watch all 418 play all 419. <laughs> but I played, uh, played football, and the football coach was also the lacrosse coach. I played basketball and baseball at Northern in 10th grade. And then in 11th grade, the football coach, who was the head coach of lacrosse, said, if you'd like to be the starting quarterback, you're going to have to play lacrosse. So I started playing lacrosse in 11th grade, and that's when it got started. Wow. 11th grade, and it turns into your biggest uh, passion in your profession and uh, all that. And so you ended up um, heading off to Salisbury to play? I did. You know, I, I growing up in Baltimore City, I didn't know anything, you know, uh, uh, I, my playing only two years in high school, my first year, you know, I was okay. And my second year, I, I scored a, a ton of goals and started getting some people to recruit me and everything like that. And I had kind of told Salisbury I was going there. And so my family felt I should honor it. And so I played on the first varsity team at Salisbury for a guy named Andy Jones, who was a local in-town guy, insurance salesman, was an All-American at Lehigh. And uh, he did a great job recruiting. You started so late and you were an attackman. So your skill set must have been just growing at an exponential rate 
through college and even probably beyond? I think I, I got a lot. I had a, a upside from lack of experience. You know, we didn't play in the best league. So, you know, th that way, but we played very athletic kids. And so every year I, I felt, thought like I got better and had a better understanding of what to do. I was a pretty good basketball player back then. And so those, the two man game skills, uh, had to, to break a guy down off the dribble or whatever back then, uh, you know, I, I, I started getting better and better at that. What, um, so how would you describe yourself as a player? Uh, I was, I was, a, I, I was a good teammate. Uh, I love the game. I love the guys on the team. And, you know, like my freshman year, I had 21 goals and my sophomore year, I had 52 and my junior years, I was in the sixties. So I, I think I got better. I was a good rider. And, uh, more importantly, I, you know, I was probably my down, the weakness was I was always the guy with the ball on my stick. And so, un unfortunately, if things went bad, it was in my stick again and over and over again. I can remember us getting upset by Kutztown State, and I was a solid three for 21 in shooting. So, uh, you know, I, I got our team beat that day. But, uh, you know, it was, you know, I, I'm, I'm a much better passer as I went along in the club league and shared the ball a lot more. I think early when you're used to having the ball in your stick all the time, you probably made a lot of bad decisions. Yeah, no doubt. Um, so were you kind of a player, sort of like a Timmy Nelson type of player? No, Timmy was better than me. Uh, I, you know, I, again, I'm a fat guy now. I used to be a skinny guy. Yeah. So, I, I, you know, I, I could go right to left. Like they always used to say I couldn't go right on a green arrow. Uh -huh. I, uh, I knew left-handed better than they knew garden left-hand. And then as I got to better and better levels, then – you know, I probably played more off ball than I did on ball. Yeah. So, but early I had to ball my stick a lot. And at the end it was, you know, we were good on odd number. We were good on extra man. We were good on somebody breaking us down. We had a tremendous attack at Maryland Cross Club with Bobby Greedy, John Lane, uh, myself, and we, we were pretty successful. Nice. Um, how did you get into coaching? Well, my high school football coach was one of the greatest men I've ever met. And, he was a guy that you looked up to, and that seemed like a good plan. And then I went to Salisbury and was uh, uh, a phys ed major and wound up – we had a coach named Mike McGlinchey, who's one of the legendary coaches in wrestling and football, and he was a teacher at Salisbury, and he was another kind of guy that we all looked up to. And so uh, that was just seemed like the right thing to do. And so – when did you – so after college, how did it – what was the chronology? Well, I coached uh, at Salisbury uh, for two years with a man named Charlie Clark, who's a Hall of Fame guy, used to be at Washington College, uh, coached, retired for like 20 years, came back and coached. I helped him. And then Severn School in Annapolis was looking for a uh, head basketball, head lacrosse, assistant football. And when I was at Salisbury, I went up coaching basketball, JV – uh, two years with Ward Lambert. So I, I fit two of the three pretty well. And I played football in high school, so that wasn't too bad. So I went to Severn and spent two years at Severn and really enjoyed that. And then from there to Loyola? Yeah, Loyola was a part-time job at the time. And they had gone through – they've had, they had some really good teams. And then they started uh, having some 
bad teams. In fact, I think when I, when I got there two years before that or three years before that, they had lost to Washington College 31 to three. Oh my God. And so uh, I wasn't making a whole lot of money as a high school coach. So when the opportunity came, Tom O'Connor, who was the AD at Loyola, offered me the job full time. And I wound up taking it. And uh, we always thought that Loyola was a place that had tremendous potential. Yeah. And, uh, you know, but they've had part-time coaches that couldn't do it full-time. And now this was an opportunity to do it full-time. What year did you start there? My first season was 1983. 1983. I don't remember. I remember, yeah. I re- <laughs> I remember um, getting a phone call from you sometime in the uh, fall of 1984. So my senior year. And I still remember exactly what you said, which was, hey, Jamie, we're going places with you or without you. <laughs> and yeah. sure enough, you know, five years later, you guys were yeah, in the final four and you really did build an awesome program. Yeah, we, you know, it was, we, we were different back then. I don't think we're overly athletic like some of the teams today, but we were smart. We were very efficient on offense and we played a lot of zone defense. And that became kind of what we were known for back then was the zone defense and uh we started getting better and better players. And again, as you know, when you have good players, yeah. good things happen. And we had good, not only good players, but good people back then. The zone defense, you guys rode that right to the final four, or the championship game, right? You beat Yale in the final four. And um, that was the year before I got into coaching um, at Yale. And um, I remember watching all of those films and stuff, but uh, you know, it's, it's interesting when you run that much zone, you end up really learning so much about it by just doing it, right? Well, you learn how to attack it. I can remember, I think it was 1985, we played Penn, and Penn had six poles. You could play six poles back then. Mm-hmm. And we played them, and we had just played Syracuse, who was number one in the country, and really played them tough. I think we lost 12-7, 12-8, so, but we were in the game the whole time. They kind of got away at the end. And uh, – so we played Penn on a Tuesday, and we're practicing the zone offense for the Penn zone, if you would. Yeah. I don't think we got a shot off, much less a good shot that day. <laughs> and so, and you're, and that was a Monday practice for a Tuesday game. And you know, you had practice zone beforehand, but it just wasn't the same zone because they could they could ramp up the pressure and everything like that. We had a really good player named Pat Lehman, and when he. Uh, when he scored off the pipe and it bounced, hit the pipe and went in to make it 16 to one that day, I knew I had to do a lot more work on being a better coach zone offensively, but also find out more how to play this zone. And that kind of was the, the game that kind of said, okay, let's find out how they're doing this. So it was in the eighties when you first got started there that, uh, that uh, the late great Dave Huntley uh, worked with you. Can you tell us a little bit about how that, how that went down and what, tell us a couple hunt stories maybe. David is uh, David and Steve Way, the two captains of Johns Hopkins. My first two years, I think 83 to 85, they both wanted to get into the master's program. And when Father Selinger hired me at Loyola, the first thing he said to me is, I want to beat Hopkins. I said, Father, everybody wants to beat Hopkins, but they do this, 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 and this. So if we're going to, you know, emulate or try to find out the, the answers to what Hopkins was doing. Nothing was better than having the two most competitive, ultra-intelligent uh, coaches on our staff, and, and Steve Way and Dave Huntley were just that. And it was so much fun having them around. As you know, Hunts, you're either great with Hunts or you suck. <laughs> and there was no middle ground. And you could be great on Monday and suck on Tuesday. 
And, uh, but David was, he was the best. And Steve Way is to this day, one of, if he decided to be a full-time coach, he could have been a hall of fame coach. He was that good. And uh, to, that's when getting to know David back in 83 to 85 and his, and his, his wife. And it was, it was a lot of fun having him around. The, um, the nineties were very interesting in lacrosse because there was like this massive movement um, on a lot of levels um, of, of uh, evolution, you know, whether it was the way, you know, you pioneered the zone, the way Bill Tierney pioneered the slide and recover defense, the way recruiting went um, with regard to, you know, the top 205 camp. And uh, there was like, there were really a lot of things. And then towards the, as the nineties went on, you know, with those Princeton offenses, like we've never really seen that level of skill. And it was sort of at the, t at the beginning of the 90s was the Gates, right? And Marichak, and it's like, wow. Um, I was just curious about your thoughts on, you know, your experience in that during that decade while you're building a program and just some of the memories and the things that stick out to you that were notable on, on sort of that, the topic of evolution in the 90s. Well, you're 100% right about a change in there. Uh, the zone was a big – we play, started playing zone in 88. It was the first year we made the playoffs. And we lost to Penn that year at Penn. And they went out – and that was the day of the air gate uh, yeah. up at the carrier dome. So, you know, we you, coaches, as you know, we traveled around in our car and went from camp to camp. Yep. And then in 89 was the first year we started top 205. And all the good players from across the country came down. So I thought it really helped us when we were at Loyola because we have such a great dormitory situation that we got the best players to visit who may never even have considered Loyola. I can remember Paul Canaby, you know, uh, you know, he, he came down from Irondequoit and he was a kid that was destined to go to Syracuse. He wound up going to Loyola. And so, uh, where, where Syracuse, you know, Tony revolutionized defensively with the zone, then Syracuse re revolutionized the Canadians with Tommy Marichak in both gates, and then Billy Tierney, for them to win, they had to find a way to – you couldn't stop those guys individually. He had to find a way to stop them collectively. And I think they won titles in, what, uh, 92, 94, 96 – you know, I think they won the even years in the 90s. And Billy's and they defense, won seven and eight. And they won – which ones? 96, 97, and 98. They three-peated. Okay, it's 96, 97, 98. And what happened there, when we first – we used to scrimmage Princeton all the time. We started scrimmaging, scrimmaging when Billy was there because he was a close personal friend. So we'd scrimmage them in the spring. And every year – their defense was the same. Scott Bacchino-Lupo one year, you know, Trevor Tierney another year. But their offense, when they had those three attackmen of, of Massey, Hess, and Hubbard, they were, they were just tough to beat. I'll, I'll tell you, I, used, I did a study, and back then, I think it was in 1990 or 91, that you aver we averaged 42 shots a game at that time. When you play Princeton – you get no extra man. They didn't call fouls. They had no fouls. You got no transition, and you had to play six on six. So our shots went down just by the nature of their possessions. Uh, went down against Princeton. We went down from 42 to 32. So every time we scrimmage Princeton, we're only getting 32 shots. So that's why they were in a, a lot of one-goal games. And what I learned from them is 
you can have bad quarters offensively as long as you play great defense. And we used to kick the living crap out of them in a, in a quarter and be leading two to one. You know, and then when they got a quarter, they got a 3-0 or a 4-0 quarter. So, but that was the one thing I learned there. Billy revolutionized, you know, basically man-to-man on the ball and zone behind it. And, yep. and the recoveries that they taught, they were way ahead of their time in the recoveries. And the multiple looks, you know, slide from here, second slide from there, slide out of the adjacent, second from the crease, and, you know, that whole idea. I mean, I, I must have watched the, the Bill Tierney – um, the, the Princeton way defense video a thousand times, you know, trying to prepare myself to learn how to coach defense. Yeah. Well, you're right about that. They had a defense when they had Nick Lane on the crease. They used to call two Nick. Nick would always make the second slide wherever it was. And as Billy developed, he went from the base defense that he wound up telling everybody how he did it. He developed it into, it became people defense. This guy likes to inside roll. We're going to force him top side. This guy wants to go right. We're going to force him to go left. So they used the concepts of the Princeton defense with concepts of playing people individually. And, and that was, again, light years ahead of everybody else. Talk to me a little bit about the evolution of transition offense through the 90s. I mean, it seems like, you know, everything was down the side through X. And then through the 90s, it started to become, and maybe maybe more early 2000s, but it seemed like it turned into a little bit more throw it, you know, across, keep it in front of the net. What's your memory of sort of how that, how that came about? Well, it's funny. I remember Buddy Beermore was the first one at the University of Maryland to throw the ball behind. And I can remember that. That was their transition offense. And they were great teams back then. So then everybody started throwing it behind. And then teams became, they didn't, they, back then they were going behind to play the ball. Yeah. Then teams go, why are we going behind? And that caused a change. Well, if they're not going behind, why are we sending guys behind? Yeah. So about that time, I, the 3-3 three, three extra man offense really took over. Yeah. And so we made a lot of our transition into, we were really good on the 3-3 three, three extra man. We turned a lot of our transition into 3-3 three, three looks. And a lot of people kept their players in front of the goal. Yeah, interesting. What about um, the evolution of um, inverts? Um, I mean, there was there were some years I remember when you guys would like invert, I don't know, 80% of the time. Um, and you had some really good teams that were able to do that. And, and, and I, I, you know, I remember being sent out of the box in the spring of 1986 with a short stick. So it wasn't like it was invented then, but it, but it really started becoming more prevalent in the 90s, and I feel like you sort of took that and the big little to another level. Can you talk a little bit about how that came about? Well, you know, it's when we played the really, really good athletic teams, they pressed out on us because we had good players, don't get me wrong, but we weren't super athletic. We had Mark Fry who was super athletic and Mike Batista, you know, some of those guys. But other guys couldn't handle the pressure. You know, we didn't have six guys that could handle the pressure. But we noticed that every time we went behind a goal with a short stick, everybody backed off the pressure. Then they played kind of in defending. So then we said, okay, when we get in trouble, if we're getting pressured, let's go right to an invert. And so we started off with the one four one the single invert, roll the guy behind and whatever. That was part of it. Then we went to a two-behind double invert. And then, you know, all of a sudden, if you turn the ball over in that, that double invert, you, you have trouble getting back on defense. And then it came to, okay, let's play a big little. Let's not take our best attackman out of the play here. Let's put a guy who could pick for him and get him so he can 
get to his advantage so he can get his stick head upfield. So it kind of uh, changed as we went along. But realistically, we inverted over and over again because that was a schematic that helped us win. <clears throat> but the bottom line is I don't think you can just win by schemes anymore. You got to be athletic. You got to be tough. You got to be competitive, and you got to be together. And schemes will get you a few games, but it won't get you a championship. Yeah, totally. Um, so, what year was it that you transitioned from Loyola to Maryland? Uh, the, the the first season was two thousand and two. Two thousand. We had lost to Billy, I think, at Hofstra in two thousand and one. Uh, they they. Uh, up there in the playoffs and then the, the whole Maryland thing came about and started in 2002 and completely different team. They were a big physical athletic group. And at Loyola, we had been kind of smaller, quicker, smarter, you know, slicker. And so it, it forced us to make some, I forced me to make some changes. Yeah. So what was it like, um, after having built the program and really had, you know, top five program in the country for 10 years to make that move down to Maryland. Was that something that you'd kind of had your eye on over the course of years, or was it just an opportunity that presented itself that you went for? Well, yeah, I thought that Maryland was a great place to work. You know, I, I grew up as, as a resident of Maryland. I was a Maryland basketball and football fan yeah. And that was the one place that if – and I wanted to try ACC football and basketball at the time. So I, I realized I was taking a chance by making a move, but I was willing to do that. And, uh, and you know, it, it was – I got to meet some of the greatest people in the world there. We had some good teams, and uh, I, I thoroughly enjoyed my time. I'm glad I did. You know, oh, yeah. I could say the way it ended, you know, it ended on a 12-4 and four season, you know. I know. Yeah. Yeah. And so – but we didn't win – she wanted us to win the championship. We didn't win it. And, and that was her right to make that decision. And she was straight up with me before the season. And, uh, but I really enjoyed my time at Maryland too. I enjoyed my time at Loyola and Maryland. For sure. What, um, how did you, uh, how would you say, how would you characterize those Maryland years as far as your approach, um, both as, building a team as well as, you know, the, the, the sort of environment on both sides of the ball of kind of how you felt like you had to play to win. We had animals on defense, boy. Yeah. We had that, that one year, you know, you have Lee Zink. Oh, yeah. You know, you have Chris Passavia. You know, we, we had terrific polls. We had ter terrific athletes. Paul Gillette is a shorty and some of these guys. We were a much better team defensively. We were an all-man team. You know, couldn't, didn't even think about playing zone back then. Uh, the one thing, the biggest thing I will say that I did not – when we were at Loyola, we weren't in a league. And everyone kept telling me that the ACC is different. The level intensity for ACC games would be unbelievable. And you, you, they just seemed like it's a game. Well, right. it wasn't a game. Yeah. Those games had incredible – uh, the kids were really into it. It was a tough league back then with Dom in Virginia and, uh, you know, Carolina had it rolling there for a while and, and Duke with Mike Pressler, you yeah. know, it was a tough league. And you, we, we saw, it was only four of us and we saw each other like three times a year. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we were, uh, you know, we were, we were probably at the top of the league in defensive personnel 
we were okay offensively. We had some really great players. First recruiting class had Billy McGlone and Brendan Healy and Joe. Joe Walker. Walker. Yeah. You know, Joe was a 16-year-old kid when I saw him at the Empire Games, and he was young. But he had he had the ability to shoot at three different levels when he was a freshman. And, you know, we had guys like Michael Mollett and a guy who I thought turned in – two guys that are middies I thought turned in to be great players, Nate Watkins. Yeah. Nate was a short stick D mini that we needed to play offense, and he he, he was terrific that last couple of years. And then Ryan Moran, you know. Yeah. When, I, when I got the job, you'd ask the kids, who, who, who's the best player who doesn't play? And every single one of them said Ryan Moran. And now he's the head coach at UMBC, an outstanding tactician. But he was a heck of a player. And he could dodge. He could face off. He was tough. He was smart. He was competitive. And those guys were – he, he's a great human being. And I'm glad we got to spend some time around him. Yeah, great player. He's one of my favorite players to watch. Still playing amazingly. I remember – I remember him at Jake Reed's blue chip, his very first blue chip camp. And, um, and, uh, and he was at that um, sticking shots. And when you talk about Joe Walters is three different levels. What did you mean by that? Well, he could shoot low to low. He could shoot low to high. He could shoot overhand high to low. And he could shoot the three-quarter shot. He could shoot the bouncer. And not many guys can do that. So he, he had the ability to shoot different – usually a guy comes in from high school, he might have his one bread-and-butter shot, and then he develops it over college. Joe had it already when he got there. And I can remember Mike Mollett saying, we lost, uh, we lost in the final four to Virginia where Tillman Johnson we, – we played very well, but Tillman Johnson beat us that day. Yeah. And he, he said, if we had him last year, we would have won this thing because Joe came in ready-made. And uh, – uh, and, you know, and Joe would, could do the other thing. He could catch and shoot. Mm-hmm. So not only could he sh- shoot off the dot, he could catch and shoot. So he, his skills were light years ahead of a lot of kids his age. Yeah. Well, he was such a deceptive shooter too, right? I mean, that was what made it. It wasn't just his ability to place it. It wasn't just the power. It was the fact that when he went low to low, it, he, he, he'd lift up, right? And you couldn't tell. The goalies would be a little late on it. And what what's your – philosophy on this I I find it very interesting to look at the Canadians who are generally very deceptive shooters and if you look at statistically they have shot at around 34 percent in division one lacrosse for the last 10 plus years where <laughs> Americans have shot at 28 percent and you think about a population that shoots that well if it was like basketball they would be doing <laughs> figure out what that population is doing and do it exactly I don't see that same translation in our country to, to learn how to be a deceptive shooter, and I think that has a lot to do with it. I was curious about your opinion on that. Well, I think they hide the ball better before they shoot than the American kids traditionally. The other thing is I think their front shoulder, they, they disguise their shots by their front shoulders. I can remember watching the Gates year after year drop their shoulder on the run, making you think you're going to shoot it low and stick it high. Yeah. You know, they, uh, they don't shoot for real far out. You know, they, they – because they're used to playing the box. But I think the idea – they were one-handed and they got to their strength and they got to the middle of the field. And, I, you know, getting to the middle of the field changes everything when you're talking about shot selection and, and improving angles. And, and the other thing is typically they're about a year older than most of the American kids, you know, with the grade 13 at the time and everything yeah. like that. So they had they kind of pg So there, there are a lot of reasons for that without but tremendous skill tremendous disguise 
toughness because, you know, in the box leg, you can get in fights, you know, you can't run and hide to any of your teammates. They, their competitiveness and toughness on a team, uh, like last year's Bayhawk team, we picked a bunch of Canadians up. Mm-hmm. They wound up being really good players and really tough guys. Yeah, they good. They know how to compete too because they play in playoff series it's from the time they're, you know, 19, 18 years old. They're playing a seven-game series with Six Nations, and those those series get nasty. You know, once you're because you you can throw a game in the series and just beat the crap <laughs> out of somebody if you need to. That's funny. That's true. It is, yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit about um, your opinions on two-man game and how the, it, it sort of um, evolved. You know, I mean, there was, a, there was a time when picking was kind of behind the net to free your hands to feed. And it was kind of like, get away from me. I don't want to pick. You know, I remember going to set a pick for somebody and they're like, get the, he- get the hell out of my way. Um, you know, and, and over the course of the 2000s through the 2010s, the proliferation of Canadians, um, the Paris offenses, um, the big little behind. And I, I, I feel like it just continues to grow. And it's a lot more on the wings now than it, than it was. Um, and you th- just love to hear your thoughts on that evolution and, and what you've learned and what you think about it. Well, if you, I said earlier, if you shoot down the alley, you want to run like we all used to try to do against Princeton. Yeah. You know, you're going to shoot under 28%. Yeah. If you get to the middle of the field, you got a chance to shoot over 30. And now you're watching the success rate of some of these college teams that are scoring three out of four offensive possessions because they're doing a good job of, uh, of two-man game getting to the middle of the field. What I found out was when I, my offense started in a two-man game, I couldn't figure out if we couldn't score where it went wrong. I couldn't figure it out because you're relying on individuals to make decisions rather than sometimes executing. You know, it's two men making the same decision. So what we learned after David Huntley coached with us the one year at at the Bayhawks is we were better off running something to a two-man game rather than just setting up in the two-man game. And with the advent of one-handed Canadians, uh, the wing became a dominant place to dodge from and a very difficult place to slide to because you can throw through, you can throw back, or you can throw forward and throw it again and play it again. And uh, I just felt like uh, for us uh, and watching one of your videos, it's true. A two-man game in the NBA or in college lacrosse or box forces a third man, if you do it right, to commit. And once a third man commits, then you've got the backside and it's a lot easier to play. And so uh, when they were behind the goal doing a two-man game a lot, you know, teams sometimes just put a guy in front of the goal. I know. So it didn't really matter. Right. So you can't do that with the wing. You can't. And so the wing became the dominant place to dodge. Yeah. You can't – you just can't back off or, or they're just going to shoot it. Absolutely. And they, and if, you, if you're not up there or you're not getting great communication, you know – then that guy, he gets an advantage and his stick heads to the middle of the field and he gets a shot off, which is a much tougher angle for the goalie to stop. And, and it really has changed the game. Yeah. The two-man game is, you know, you, you, you know, and most people thought shorties, you know, when you get shorties, you want two guys that can really cover. Well, now you're almost better with the two-man game. You're better off having one guy you can really cover, one guy you can play off ball. You know, because <laughs> yeah. that off-ball guy's going to help you because he's going to make the rotations. Right, because that third guy. Right. Yep. Somebody, you got to be able to make that play. 
it's I I think there's going to be a an increase in the amount of long to short picking as players get better at slowing down and finessing their two man game rather than the old I'm going to explode off this pick angle shoulder to shoulder attack the middle you know if you can control that on ball shorty which you can because your threat of you know if you get into that posture if you're if you're if your threat of dodge is going to is going to dig him in a little bit now a pick starts coming and and now you start figuring out how to hang up that pull that pole wants to help, but he also wants to cover his guy. And all of a sudden, they're they're in a they're in a pickle. And I think there's going to be great opportunity on repicks and that type of long to short picking as as people continue to evolve in their pick in their two man game. Any thoughts on that? No, I agree with you 100. percent Also, think I, you're seeing teams dodge a little bit more from the middle of the field up top with yeah. a pick on a pole, whether it be the long pole or whatever in the shorty. Because in our game, in the pro game, you have the two point shot. So if you come and you bust off and you go shoulder to shoulder and now they both guys are somewhat committed and they don't recover quickly, you can throw back and now you can throw back to a two. So that's another place I think in a pro game there's a lot of opportunities to pick to get a two. Because I think that's when – I don't think anybody's really studied the twos in the way you need to study the twos mm-hmm. because you, you, you can get them in transition. You can get them off the ground and you can get them off the pick, and then you can get them extra man. Having those four areas and working those four areas to get the twos, I think you're going to see the next level pro lacrosse happen. I'd love to uh, transition right into pro lacrosse. Um, So you had uh, won three championships, had some awesome players. Can you just talk to us a little bit about uh, how you got into it and um, and then about, you know, some of the the great great guys you got a chance to coach and maybe some stories about them? Yeah, when I got let go in Maryland in that summer of 2010, the Bayhawks had just fired John Tucker, who's a, who's a good friend of mine and everything like that. And Brendan Kelly, the owner, became the coach. And halfway through, uh, they they had to win a couple games or whatever. And lo and behold, they made the playoffs. And he called me and asked me if I would come help him as a consultant for the 2010 playoffs. I said, sure, I'll come help you. So it, the, the rule was that you couldn't – the coaches couldn't coach their teams. Well, I wasn't a coach. So Brendan goes down and the oh. staff goes down for vacation. So the, next thing you know, players, Bugsy Combs was a captain. He organized practice, and we practiced for two weeks. And we, we put in a few things that they wanted to run and, uh, offensively. And so we came back, and I can still remember, because Kip Turner is one of my all-time favorites. Yeah. And we played the Boston Cannons. And Kip Turner's going, in the middle of the game, he's going, they're running nothing they've run all year. And we, had, we used those two weeks to our advantage to wind up adding some stuff and upset them in the semifinals and then beat uh, – one of the few times I saw Brian Spelina's team lose in a championship game. We went up beating them and Brennan was the head coach. And I felt I was appreciative that he brought me on board to help him. And then from then on, he offered me a job with the organization. I waited about six months before I did it. And I, since 2011, I've worked for the Bayhawks. Yeah. Awesome. Great. Uh, some great games to watch. I've been watching some highlights actually just recently. Um, it's been, you know, they just, the MLL throws some some stuff up on there in Twitter, and I just can't help but to watch. I mean, the, the, you had so many 
phenomenal players. I mean, just off the charts. I um, am so lucky. If you yeah. think about it, we won in 10 and uh, which was, you know, 11. Uh, we lost by one in the, in the semifinals. I think Boston beat us in 11. I think it was the hurricane day, you know, where they, there were like yeah. three people at the game and yeah. then 12 and 13, we made some adjustments to our roster. And then, you know, when you get John Grant, when you get Nikki Polanco, when you get Brian Spolino, you know, Casey Powell in 13, you know, you already had Mike Kimmel and Kyle Dixon and those Ben Rubio and those guys. We just had a great team. We had great players. And I can remember going up to, uh, to Boston and we played in 12 and we played the Cannons that day. And we were just terrific that day. We, I think we beat them 16 to 10 or 16 to 11 in the semis. And the next day we played Denver Jimmy Stagnito was the coach, and the day before Friday practice, Brennan Mundorf got hurt. Oh, yeah. And so we played – he tried to play. He took himself out, and we, we kind of smoked him that day. We were 16 to 6, and Alex Smith, I think, won every face-off every which way he possibly could. And so that started us. And then we – in 13, we were a little older, and uh, but we were just – John Grant was the MVP of the championship game. I think Ben Rubio too in twelve was had eight goals in one of the games, and uh, he's phenomenal. And John Grant scored in like the last three seconds of every quarter except the fourth, and we wound up beating Charlotte. Denver that year had been undefeated. They got upset by Charlotte, and we wound up beating them ten to nine. But it was ten to seven with two seconds left. And Donowski threw one in from oh yeah uh, the middle of the field. But you know it, it was it was a, when you got Matt Abbott and these guys. Oh, yeah, we Tremendous players, my goodness. Yeah. And they were all winners and they were all competitive and he, they, they didn't do it for the money. Michael Evans, you know, he, Michael Evans is the nice guy of the three defensemen, you know, <laughs> Brian Spleen and Nicky Blanco. You've got an angry group of guys. And, uh, and so it was fun going back to back. We got a little old, we got injured the next year. And then, yeah. uh, you know, we, we wound up, uh, Brian Reese became the coach, you know, uh, and really, I thought Brian did a great job when he was there. I mean, he did a great job. We just didn't have any talent. And so we went up. I thought Atlanta, I think you were on the staff, traded us Miles Jones and Ryan Tucker or whatever, and it kind of turned us around, got us some juice. We yeah. picked Lyle Thompson, came back, played more games. And, you know, uh, and, that was and, helpful. Yeah, 18 and 19. Lyle Thompson is, he's just, he just loves the game. Yeah. I mean, well, before Steel we move Steel. on to Lyle, before we move on, I, I got to hear some uh, some thoughts on John Grant Jr. Because every time I watch, I could like literally watch 24 hours straight of John Grant Jr. doing anything in lacrosse. But talk to me about what you think makes him so special with his with his skill and IQ and creativity and kind of how he how he does it. Uh, I'll tell you the difference with John before we get to him individually. Yeah. When we traded for him, we were playing the Hamilton Nationals the next time. Yeah. So Nicky Polanco, we added him to our roster, and John Grant, we added to our roster. Well, whenever we played the Hamilton Nationals, they had looked at us in such disdain, you know, little, you know, Baltimore guys and everything like that. Well, when Nicky walked in and then John Grant walked in, every single one of them went over to John Grant. And I felt like there was a difference for the first time we played them from other times we played them is they respected John Grant so much. And John, I, I think Hunts might have been coaching at that time yeah, for him. Yeah, yeah. And I think they shorted John. And you, with the idea that some, he gets so proud that he'll take himself out of the game. 
what was his first game, and he wasn't going to do that. And he just dominated the game. He might have had five or six assists and everything. He's the greatest left-handed stick. He is tough as nails. He wants to win. Uh, he's just tremendous. And the one thing we learned at the end, we probably gave him the ball less than a lot of the other teams did uh, because we had pretty good players around him. Yeah. But we got to, at the last 10 seconds, we called a junior time. And so when he, the shot went out of bounds in the last 10 seconds, he go gets it. We'll start subbing. There were times he scored goals when they only had, we only had four guys out there. Yeah. So we called a junior time. But he became so much better in 13 off the ball. He didn't have to have it all the time. And, uh, and was, like I say, the MVP of the championship game and just a tremendous – you know, John understood the game. Yeah. He really did. He understood the game and he understood winning and he's been a part of a lot of winning. And uh, yeah, I, I, I respect the heck out of John Grant. His, uh, his shooting is just so absurd. How, how do you, how do you, how would you characterize the way he shoots it? I've never seen anything like it. I will tell you this, uh, Jody Gage, we, when we traded for John, I called Jody. I said, Jody, you've been around John. How do you coach him best? He goes, I know you American guys. He goes, just, just remember this, his behind the back is better than the offhand of every American kid you've been around. <laughs> so when he's throwing a behind the back, it's not to, to look good. It, it's because it's the right play. So he scored some of those behind the back shots. And, you know, I wish he would name some of his moves yeah. because they're legendary. And you could do a, a video of just him. Yeah. But, you know, and that, that made it simple. And, and John wanted to win. He was at that time – we thought he was near the end of his career and he said, you know, and won other championships. Yeah. And, uh, but he just wanted to win and he, he was a good locker room guy, a tough guy. And uh, yeah. he, he was a professional. He's a good guy to be around. He's definitely a fun guy. Um, another great guy to be around. That's an all time great that you got sort of towards the end of his career too. Casey Powell, you mentioned him earlier. What a great guy. First of all, I mean, just like one of the best all time guys to be around, but as a player, you know, a lot of people that haven't really got – don't know how good he was, you know, people of this, this – the kids of this era. I'll talk a little bit about him. I'm John Canaris, founder of Oxia Time, a watch company specializing in university-branded watches. Before I fell in love with watches, I fell in love with lacrosse. Maybe you've heard of the Air Gate? Well, that was me in goal that day. We may not have won the national championship, but we did win the Ivy League that year and two years before. The first time, we got a ring that we never wore. The second time, we got a watch that while it had great sentimental value, the quality didn't match the significance of our achievements or the memories we created. Ever since then, I've looked for a watch with the design and quality that would live up to my experiences at Penn. After 30 years of looking and not finding what I wanted, I decided to build it myself. At Axia Time, we create Swiss-made automatic watches with stylish designs and quality befitting the universities we represent premium watches without the premium price. Check us out at oxiatime.com. That's A-X-I-A time.com. Well, I can remember recruiting Casey from his house. And, when, and Casey wound up going to Syracuse. Then we went back up to his hometown and recruited Ryan. And Larry Powell, who was a really nice guy, you know, when we recruited him, Ryan, we thought Ryan was coming, kind of said that he might be coming. And then Syracuse got back involved. And uh, I think Paul Pascaloni called him a football coach and everything like that. 
up in Carthage. And Mr. I got a package the next week and I look at it and it's baloney because uh, there's a town Crogdon up there that makes great baloney up near Carthage. And so I always tell John Desco, you got the pals and I got the baloney. Mr. <laughs> Mr. Pal sent me baloney, thanked me for recruiting his boys. But Casey as a player, when he first started, was just electrifying. He was he could play midfield, he could play attack, he's a tremendous passer and everything like that. The Casey I saw, we actually in 13 probably don't win without Casey. We're down two or three to Hamilton. And he inverts and finds Michael Kimmel twice on the crease and dodges once, beats Josh Hawkins, I, Hawkins one time for a goal. We don't win without him. But the thing that I, I remember about him more than anything was at halftime of the games, he was so upbeat. He was talking to his players. He was, hey, we're not playing well right now. All we got to do is turn around. Next play. He was always ahead. Totally. And that, to me, yeah. when I think of Casey Powell, I think of a battle of a winner but a guy who was committed to his teammates and a great teammate. Yeah, for sure. I remember watching him when I was coaching at Yale. Um, first time I ever saw him in person, he was a senior at Carthage. And just watching him run up the field, it was just like, oh, my gosh. And then best player on the field as a freshman in the national championship game when they won it. Um, and, uh, yeah, great dude, too. You know uh, what, too, before we leave him, yeah. you got to give credit to his high school coach. Yeah. Kurt Venture Quattro. They produced some of the greatest college players, and he gave them enough rope and yeah. uh, that they wound up being great. And I always went up there and I always respected him because he created so many great plays. He allowed them to be great. Uh, and probably is a better way of putting it. You had Ian Dingman also. You had the Kaufmans. Yeah. You know, he allowed them to be great. And uh, not many of us as coaches do that all the time. Well, that's an interesting sort of um, segue into, you know, the, this whole evolution, right, that we're talking about of the game and the evolution of coaching. Because, I mean, honestly, when I, when I was playing in college, you were more allowed to do stuff than when I became a coach. And as, as we evolved, we just – it became more of a chess match. It became more, more controlled. But, but it also became much more controlled at the youth level. It became more controlled like kids – you know, you grew up like I did probably just playing pickup sports, pick up basketball, pick up football, depending on what season it was, that was a sport you played. Um, and um, I think if you ask Casey Powell and those guys, they played more backyard. If you ask John Grant Jr., you know, he played mostly backyard. You, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit about Lyle Thompson. I mean, that guy played backyard. And I guess the moral of the story is, is that there's a place for structure and great coaching. And there's also a place for let them be great. Well, it's funny, you know, I, Lord knows I made a lot of mistakes when I first started coaching, you know, I, you know, one of the mistakes I made, I thought it was my program and not the kids. And in the pro league, you don't practice enough that it is your team. Yeah. It's always their team. And that's what wound up happening in the pro league. I, I think I coached less in the pro league than I ever did before because one, you can't fix a lot of your mistakes till the following week. Right. And two is, if you can get them there to practice, you're halfway home. And I just felt like when you have great players and great people that are committed to your organization and what you do, we've got to give them the freedom to do things the right way. And sometimes that may, they may make mistakes. So that was the biggest change I made is I can remember I had, you know, I had Tony Resch's assistant back in 12 and we lost a game. We gave up a two-point goal at the end of the 
with three seconds left. We were up one. We lost, and I, and I can remember going back, we got to fix this. He goes, Coach, you can't fix it. Just let it go. Don't try to fix it over the week. Friday they come back, we'll work on fixing them. And in college, you're always – next month, Monday's the day you fix things. Right. Tuesday you start the game plan. Wednesday you full field game plan. Thursday you do half field stuff. Friday you make them feel good, and they run around and scream, and, and you tell them they're the greatest team that ever came about. But it was by necessity – the way the pro league works is that you let them, they have to own the team. And, uh, you know, I, th I don't think we win last year. If our, if our Jesse Bernhard and Steel Stanwick and Ryan Phipps, Nicky Manis and those guys didn't take over our team. And we won because of the players. That's for sure. Yeah. The other thing too, as coaches is just, just because we have something in our head that we want doesn't mean it can't be done another way. And I think that's one of the things that you learn from, letting, you know, watching and letting, letting the, the players figure some things out on their own. And we can help them if we got a bad matchup. We can sure. switch that matchup. We, you know, if they got a guy we want to pick on, you know, we can help him. You know, this guy's really struggling with a left to right move, that kind of stuff like that. But the bottom line is they're, they're going to probably do what they feel the most comfortable doing because they've done it their whole playing career. Right. So we've got to put them in spots to make them feel comfortable what they do, you know. Last year, we, we were down, we were up, and then we were down in the semifinal game, and the, the, the kids just took over. Ryan Tucker makes a big goal for us, and Steel Stanwich scores the winner, and the next day, we're up 5 nothing. Next thing you know, we're trailing, and we come back, and we don't come back because we make any great coaching changes or adjustments or gave them a motivational speech that turned it around. We won because our guys just pulled their neck, and they were tougher than – they were as tough as team as I saw, and it was important to them. Yeah. And when that game was over, whether it – you know, there was nothing but emotion coming out of those guys because they know they accomplished something special. Yep, I watched those games out in Denver. Awesome lacrosse. Um, last topic. What um, – tell us about the, uh, the state of – your opinion on the state of college lacrosse right now. I mean, obviously, the talent is – off the charts and now with you know basically uh, four classes worth of college teams reclassing you know what do you what do you sort of expect um you know to see moving forward well that's a great question you're going to see some universities that are totally committed to it and other universities that aren't you know i look at this thing I, when when i looked at hopkins when i took the loyola job hopkins had guys in five different places that were totally committed to the success of the program. The president was at every game. The provost was Jerry Schneidman, you know, a former lacrosse player, the admissions guy, the dean of students. The, and so what you need to do in the lacrosse program is find those programs that it's important through, throughout the school. Like Loyola right now, I think Charlie and his staff have done a tremendous job. Billy Tierney at Denver, his staff. It's important to those universities because it puts them up with other people. You know, yeah. it puts them up with the Big Ten schools and the ACC schools. So having a school and an institution that's totally committed to it. We'll find out the commitment level right now in lacrosse with, uh, with the way the economy is right now. You're going to find out who's totally committed and who's not right now. Yeah. And that's what's scary for me. I think we could go through a period where we lose a bunch of programs. And I hope it's not true. But uh, that's the first thing. The second thing is the coaches are great. They spend a lot of time with their guys. They use technology through and through. Great scouting reports. And you look at them, there's just a lot of one-goal games in the league. 
you know? And I think the biggest change in lacrosse in the last four or five years is the, the, the mental game preparation and uh, not only teaching them how to play uh, X and O wise, but also teaching them why it's important to share successes with somebody else rather than just yourself. And the teams that are all in, you looked at Yale, who was all in that one year, the teams that are all in for each other are the ones that I truly recognize. And I like watching play. Yeah. You know, I knew, I don't, I didn't know if Yale's talent was good enough, but I knew they were committed to each other. And you're starting to see that right now. The ones that are committed to each other, Penn state, you, you know, I love how he coaches and I like what he does with his team. Those teams that are committed, they're the ones that are special. No doubt. And the, and the level of talent these days is just off the charts. I mean, just look at the, the senior class. Just look at the attackmen. You know, have you ever seen this amount of depth at the attack position ever? I don't think so. Uh, honestly, you know, I, I didn't have to study this year's group, thank goodness, because I'm not drafting again. The year before, I drove around. I saw 32 different programs practice. And I thought I had a pretty good idea who was pretty good. You know, and I looked, I said, this polls, they don't have a lot of – they don't make any sense to me, you know, the preseason polls of what happened. Two best teams I saw practice that year were Penn State and Virginia. And they wound up making it a Final Four, and Virginia wound up winning it. And so, you, you know, you could go to a practice, and I could go to a practice and say, this team's really good. But the bottom line, you look at Virginia, they got six guys that can play in a pro league on offense. Yeah, right. Six guys. I mean, that's absurd, you know, and – even their off-ball guys are good, you know, and they got a pole and everything like that. But I, I, just, I think the players are good. I just, but to me, it's about, you know, the, the glue guys, sure. the shorties, the yeah. freaking toughness. That, that's what wins. You know, you can be pretty as a picture and not win. You better be tough as they come. No doubt. Look at, hey, Jamie, look at the toughness of Virginia. They were down in a bunch of games and just kept playing and kept coming back. You know, people have a tendency to overstate Virginia's town and understate their competitive will, you know. And that was, you know, that was a competitive team that kept fighting all the way through. And congrats to Lars for that. And, again, Kip Turner, who I love, you know, and to that staff. They kept fighting. And that, that was a championship they're going to enjoy for a long, long time. No doubt. I mean, when they have six, seven games down three to five goals in the fourth quarter, I mean, you know, one of those in the season – is, is, is a big-time win for you. Yeah, agree. 100% agree. Well, it's never been harder to, it's never been harder to win in Division I lacrosse, and yet there's, it's, there's probably never been a better opportunity to win. And I say that just because of the fact that there's so many good players. You, you pretty much know you're going to be able to have talent to be able to compete. There's so many players. But every single game is going to be a total battle. And it's, it's a lot like uh, the, the pro league that you knew and, and the one that, you know, and, and, and the new one also, where every game is a one-goal game, and there's going to be a little bit of uh, luck in the draw as far as the way the ball bounces, but it's really going to come down to the chemistry and the toughness of the teams. Yeah, and I do think uh, you're, you're seeing analytics play a factor in lacrosse more so than ever before. Yep. And I know Atlanta Blaze did an outstanding job in our league with the analytics. They put together a chart on goalies that, you know, where the ball was shot from, what percentage it went in, everything like that, that I've never seen before. You know, we used to, you know, goalie, good high, bad low, or whatever. They, they go from this side, you shoot here. From this side, you shoot there. And they have percentages that the ball goes in. So, you know, that analytics, 
makes that line even thinner of the, the winning and losing. For sure. Well, Coach, thank you so much for taking the time and uh, talking lacrosse. I, I've always loved talking lacrosse and love, uh, love listening to your theories and stories, and um, I'm sure all the listeners will appreciate it. Thank you very much. Jamie, I want to do well, – I'll give you one more story here, Dave Huntley's story. You asked for one earlier. Let's do it. We're playing the first year uh, – or second year that Dave was there coaching, and Dave wanted – and Steve Way wanted to be in charge of the conditioning. And so we're, we're, of course, we practice in full sweats till May because that's what you did back then and everything. Yeah. Hopkins did it, so we were going to do it. Right. And so it was a hot day, and we're out there running. And they, he starts them, you know, he's had them carry each other. He's had them do it. So now we're running, and they run five 60-yard sprints extra. Then it's 10. Then it's 15. Then it was 20. And they're just looking, you know. And finally, we had a New Jersey guy Mark DeSico, who was a tough kid, he finally said, this is bullshit. And Hunts goes, okay, that's over. I just wanted to hear somebody have enough guts to tell me to stop. And we <laughs> stopped. The moral of that story is every time we told him to get on the line, DeSico said it was bullshit for the rest of the year. <laughs> but David Huntley wanted them to show some toughness and character enough to reach back out and get after him. And, uh, and he was in charge of the conditioning. One of these days, we got to do a uh, podcast just on Dave Huntley stories. He's unbelievable. He is. R.I.P. Dave Huntley. Hey, Coach, thanks so much, and I uh, hope we can do it again sometime. Jamie, thank you for having me.